0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotak, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Guyana First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English Department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them.
1: Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present a recording of Doyali Islam at Tea House in September of 2019. My name is Trindalaney, and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. In this interview, Doyali discusses private architecture, a spirituality of the everyday, and reads from her most recent poetry collection, Heft, which was shortlisted for the Griffin Poetry Prize.
2: everybody, welcome to the
0: first event of, of Tea House for the fall of 2019. I'm so happy to see so many of you here. Hey, welcome back. And generally welcome back to the new term as well. I see many of the folks in this room are, are already old Tea House hats, but not necessarily everybody. So I'll say a little bit about what the project is about. Um, Five years ago, I have my PhD from this institution, uh, but I worked for the first uh, eight years of my career at the University of British Columbia. I was an assistant professor of Canadian literature in the English department there. Um, And five years ago, this university hired me back to take up a Canada research chair in creative writing, with one of the legs of the project being to set up a creative writing centre or house. Um, And so that is the Insurgent Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing, also known as Tea House for short. And we do these kinds of events on a fairly regular basis. Usually um, there's kind of a a, a keystone event every year, which is a symposium on a topic of some kind. Um, And so this year we're holding one um, that we're calling Wisdom Council, that is inviting elders from across a range of cultural locations to talk about doing um, the work of cultural and literary organizing um, from whichever generation they have, or generations or decades, they have been doing it. Um, I feel like we're living in a moment when you know there seems to be a sort of a dominant set of strategies within literary communities, and then strategies that have been forgotten. And so I just want to bring some of those old ways of doing things back to the table, but I'll put them in conversation as well some of the newer ways of doing things. So that's what that one is about. Um, there's posters up and around the department. Uh, it's gonna be from September 27th to the 29th. Um, please watch our website, ca. we put updates there and we, we'll post the program closer to the event as well on that day. Uh, the broad formation of the project is um, to do this work in the center around questions of social justice and contemporary form. So that's what's going on. This whole room was renovated for the purposes of this project. So We all feel very fortunate to sort of be resourced in that kind of way. It is my great delight this afternoon to welcome Dwayne Islam as the first reader of the season. Her second poetry book is Heft, which came out off of Helen and Stewart this year, 2019. It's a book which the poet considers to be a ledger of tenderness, survival, and risk. She's published poems from this collection in the Kenyan Review Online, The Fiddlehead Filling Station, yay, Filling Station, and Best Canadian Poetry, and she's also won several national contests and prizes. In 2019, she was interviewed by Sheila Rogers for CBC Radio's The Next Chapter, and by Anne Michaels for cv 2 She was also in conversation with Forrest Gander for Adroit Journal, or Atwa Journal, I guess depending on what kind of Canadian you're feeling today. (laughs) <laughs> in 2017, Dwye was uh, interviewed by Michael Enright for the Sunday edition and was a National Magazine Award finalist. The poetry editor of ARC, she lives in Toronto. So I'm going to invite you to, to welcome her, she's going to read for approximately half an hour. We'll have um, 20 minutes of, uh, or so of questions afterwards. Um, have more lunch. Oh, I also wanted to say a big thank you to Rebecca Jelaine, who's, you know, really Done the bulk of the organizing in collaboration with Michael <laughs> Jacobson. Um, we have outgoing Gantt, graduate assistants non- assistant non teaching. Um, and to welcome Trin who's stepping into Micah's place. So just in case you're all wondering what's happening with the staffing of Tea House this year, that's what's happening. All right, my friends, Dwayali <laughs>
2: and just say thank you so much to Larissa, to Rebecca, um, to Micah, and to Trin for walking me over here so I didn't get lost, <laughs> um, and of course to everyone for coming. Um, I feel very privileged to be given this chance to speak here, and I just want to start with a few like introductory thoughts. So I didn't know about the existence of Tea House until earlier this year, and I think it's the most beautifully named space and vision that I have ever had a chance to read at or more aptly to read within. And I say that because we do that as poets. Um, We read within visions. We often share our work in a reading series or a building in the context of complex and dynamic histories and structures and desires and longings. So more and more I hope to ask myself, whose vision do I wish to inhabit and why? Um, My partner Daniel is blind and it's with a sense of disease that I use the term vision in an attempt to articulate what I mean. But I have not yet found a more precise or true feeling word to replace it, um, to occupy in its place. So maybe, and Daniel and I will one day invent a word, or if you have any thoughts, please let me know. For those um, who think the act of writing and editing means scrawling ideas on scraps of paper, writing the question, what if, in a journal, and working with pen and or cell phone and or laptop and or desk. For those who think the acts of writing means adding or crossing out lines and words and commas, I began to write the poems in Heft in 2010. Outwardly, formally, I worked on these poems for about eight years uh, before they were collected and became the final manuscript of Heft. So pen, paper, cell phone, and laptop were my formal tools. But this disregards my personal tools of survival and the lived experiences, witnessings, questions, and urgencies that preceded the formal work. Even after all of this time and patient, careful thinking, I cannot help but notice the ways uh, which, if I were editing the poems today, I would make changes. I am glad for this because it keeps me very humble. The book is printed, but the inquiry and learning continue. Since we're at Tea House, the insurgent architect's house, I thought I'd read a short essay, which I wrote a few years ago. Um, it was published in this anthology, which is called The Manifesto Project. So feel free um, to look at it a little bit later. Um, but it was published by editors Rebecca Hazleton and Alan Michael Parker. This is a book that contains essays, or as they're calling them, manifestos on poetics. So it's a very, very rare opportunity for poets themselves to get to speak to why they write and how they write. And one of the contributors in this ish, uh, collection was uh, Claudia Rankine, so it's really, really wonderful. This morning, I was going through the book uh, have t- and trying to decide what to read. And uh, since it's Friday the 13th, <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I thought I'd read um, 13 radical poems. But I'm going to start with the manifesto. And here again, as I was reading through it uh, today to prepare, I was thinking about the things that I would do differently if I was writing it today, Um, places that the language could have been more maybe careful or just different. But anyway, Um, the essay I wrote is called A Private Architecture of Resistance. So I think it's just such a nice fit with um, the insurgent, the idea of the insurgent architect, yeah. A private architecture of of resistance. A recent news article in The Guardian examines the prevalence and purpose of defensive or disciplinary architecture in some of today's global cities, including London, Manchester, Tokyo, Guangzhou, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Hamburg, and New York. Architectural elements, such as metal spikes outside a Manchester cell bridges, concrete spikes under a Guangzhou bridge, and sidewalk sprinklers outside New York's Strand Bookstore, deter human use. More specifically, these constructions delimit the ways in which particular sites are used, and by whom. They intentionally uninvite certain bodies and groups, primarily the homeless, and consequently make invisible both these populations and the related social issues. That is, these architectural elements encourage the rest of society to disengage, to become unthinking passers-by complicit and comfortable in daily acts of non-looking. If today's architecture cultivates an attitude of inattention, poetry both emerges from and fosters attentiveness. If present-day architecture is a public architecture of oppression, poetry is a private architecture of resistance. When I was seven, my father used to play a listening game with me and my sister, in which each of us would be as still and quiet as possible for a set amount of time and record the number of distinct sounds that we heard. The refrigerator's buzz, a plane's descent to Pearson Airport, a bird call, each other's breathing. Ultimately, of course, this listening game pointed back to silence in the same way that poetry points back to a stillness or a something beyond language. However, the game did develop an alertness within us as children. This kind of alertness both is and is not what I mean in terms of poetic attentiveness. To be certain, I ground my poetry in the particulars of the everyday. However, when I write poetry, or perhaps participate in its baking, the everyday is not what I feel transpiring within me. When I write poetry, I enter what psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi terms a state of flow. All of the immediacies of my environment vanish. The hours pass without notice, the coffee maker silences itself, and I forget to eat. The experience is akin to being lowered down a well. The deeper one travels, the more one is removed from the goings-on of the world above. What replaces sensory and physiological awareness is a deeper receptivity that increases thirst, even as it sleeps. I qualify right with co- uh, quotation marks because I'm not entirely convinced that the <coughs> poet is the sole agent in poetic making. Certainly, a poet figures a poem as a physical object shapes a shadow. But the shadow points ultimately back to light, not to the object in between what is light anyway life depends on it and we see by it but light itself remains slippery it is the greatest paradox both particle and wave shadows and poems emerge from and point back to such paradox that's where poetry lives in the turn, the tension, the ambiguity, the question. If I were a fantasy writer, I would animate shadows, make them sensory companions. Leashed dogs, shadows sniff and feel the ground more closely than objects in between. Poems inspect our world with that scrutiny and intensity. They bring our world closer, but also give us enough distance to shift our attention and refocus it. So poems at work are poems that do not merely reproduce culture, but rather intervene. The idea of intervention, transgression even, leads me back to a contemplation of urban life. Defensive and disciplinary architecture aside, cities restrict original and spontaneous movement and suppress the human spirit. Sidewalks govern where pedestrians walk, and fences, bollards, and signs indicate that which is off limits. The emergence and popularity of parkour and freerunning counter architectural restraints. Although these two physical disciplines emphasize economy of movement, the psycho-spiritual dimension of parkour and freerunning have less to do with physical efficiency and more to do with spiritual trespass through the reimagination of the city. The steps, walls, and roofs of the concrete (coughs) jungle become opportunities for personal expression and myriad reinterpretations of the urban landscape. Poetry is that trespass. Writing and or reading poetry enables us to reimagine, to reinterpret, to reclaim. Good poems leave space for the reader's unique engagement. And hearing and reciting poetry are valid kinds of reading. Though a page poet, poetry for me is still an oral, oral art form. I recite from memory my favorite poems as I walk to the grocery store, to the bus stop, to the bank. Sometimes I even recite my own poems as I walk, and I believe the wind takes the words and carries them. I imagine the earth to be the greatest library, an archive of innumerable, buried, scattered, lithified, and fossilized small-age histories. And I imagine the whole earth, E-A-R-T-H, in each breath, B-R-E-A-T-H. While the personal stories in poetry are extremely valuable, poetry can also reflect upon and shape broader sociocultural histories. Indeed, poetry continues to play an important role in sweeping acts of political resistance. Poetry catalyzed and solidified the spirit of protest and revolt during the 2011 Egyptian revolution and the larger Arab Spring. Eliot Kola argues that, quote, poetry was not an ornament to the Tahrir Square <coughs> uprising. It was its soundtrack and also composed a significant part of the action itself. If we lived in a utopia, I do not know if poetry would exist. Moreover, I do not know if poetry would mean. Beneath poetry's political usefulness, Poetry serves a deeper, more existential, albeit equally political, purpose, which the word resilience encapsulates better than the word resistance. It is the kind of celebration of life that breathes within Naomi Nye's poem Red Brocade and Derek Walcott's Love After Love. It is the movement not towards erasure, but towards healing that breathes in the last three lines of Yusuf Komanyaka's poem Facing It. It is the acknowledgement of mystery that breathes in Chesa Miłosz's lyric encounter. Notwithstanding poetry that may be out and out political or politicized, I believe that the most political characteristic of poetry is the music behind the language. This music is not meter or rhyme, but an impulse, a vibration that the ear and body pick up as soon as one begins listening in or to recite. One hears, feels, this music when, for example, W.S. Merwin recites Homecoming. He speaks of flowers, plovers, flight, home. In experiencing this poem, I witness and partake in revolution. A revolution. Earth turning. My spirit turning. Yes, poetry offers a private architecture of resistance in which we can dwell and by which we can thrive. So now I'm going to read from Heft. Letter to anyone who is listening. Lately my despair is so great I can barely stand up beneath it for the moon and the drone hang in the same sky while tolls a voice. From my mother's sleep, I fell. Some days, all I wish is to be reborn into a stronger body, one larger and more buoyant, durable as the giant kelp. Kelp me would be fibrous, would have a hold fast. And when you'd say, tell me of black smoke, tell me of rubble, I, in my kelp body, would simply sway. At home in cold waters, The turbulence of your questions Would bring me nutrients For my survival It would sustain me I'm going to read um, kind of the title poem of Heft It's called The Ant but by the end of the poem you'll understand um, more of why I called the book Heft And this is a very simple poem about my father. And um, it's an interior poem in the sense that it takes place inside um, the home. And so this is The Ant. I pointed to the creature on the floor, the one hauling a burden, a rice grain, the one who had come from a sunlit wood, such a slight thing to fear its composure. My father's eyes followed my gesture through to its visible end, and his hand placed a cup over the fraught form. So it traced the perimeter of its plastic cage, wondering at the hard unseeable edge, hurrying to make sense of its enclosure. His hand tore off a piece of envelope and slid the white scrap under the cup. Then the ant was a black mark on a page struggling to interpret its situation while we spoke over it, opening a door. So too, one day will he be ushered out, back into brightness in which once he stood, a slight thing exiting a hooded world, a smallness held close by someone like me, the white scrap laid over in quietude. But before he passes that ringless gate, tunneling through a belt of mystery, which is to speak of the journey of ants. He'll have looked for a burden all his life, something to heft, heft for nourishment, something to pain him and free him at once. So the way I've kind of um, arranged this, reading in particular is to do sort of like pairs of poems. And um, the book has pairs of poems. If you look at the table of contents, they're they're paired in a certain way. But today I'm kind of like shaking up the pairings and seeing what emerges from that. So the next pairing I'm going to read is Tending Mint and Susia. So um, the first poem is called Tending Mint. And I wrote this in response to a documentary I watched called Uh, one family in Gaza. And um, in this film, a father named Kamal Awaja was talking about how one of his sons was shot um, and the son subsequently um, died. And he spoke directly into the camera and he said, I want to raise my family without violence, but I don't know how to do this. So if anyone has a solution for me, please tell me. And I don't have a way to speak back to Kamal Awaja, so I I wrote the poem. (laughs) I don't know if he'll ever see it. Probably not, but. tending mint. January 4th, 2009. In a baseball tee and tracksuit bottoms, Kamal Awasha tells the one behind a lens what happened after the soldiers left him in his street. His boy's torso shot like his own. They must have been slow so slow the hours his son's breath waged final trespass. He cries, and I hear his story as snow settles on northern Ontario silence six years on. His roofs still rubble. Near a tent he tends mint in Ibrahim's (coughs) honour, and the bullet nests a halted flaw within his chest. Nothing, it seems, can demolish his gentleness, Even now, light salvages itself in his eyes. Um, So, the next poem is Susia, and this also actually came out of um, an experience of watching a documentary um, by B.H. Yal, who's um, an Ontario filmmaker. Um, B.H. went to Israel and Palestine and was very interested in um, meeting people and understanding better the dynamics and the tensions that are happening there. Um, And there was a film in the second part of her trilogy, and in this film um, there was a clan and they started to dance. And um, that was the jumping off uh, point for this poem. Um, I re-envisioned that moment and and imagined it um, in a new way because I think the work of poetry needs to be different than uh, an inspiration piece. So for example, for ekphrastic poems where you're looking at a source material, like um, a painting, I think there needs to be a distinction d- between the source and the poem that results. Um, otherwise, there's no real need for the poem to be in existence. It has to do its own kind of work. Susia, for the Nawasha clan and others. In the South Hebron hills, the slanted hills recall old songs, and the women collect them like rain. The men have two-syllable names, Azam, Yusuf, Khalid, Nasser, each name from their fathers and their grandfathers before, a dark foot binding them to the land. They tend sheep and honor the resistance a windpipe gives a blade. When the machine arrives with its yellow claw, the clan sings "Thalathi Nishma," a love song for the hills. Khalid's throat is a dry well. If he could split his tongue in two, he would stake half in the earth and tend a singing tree, a slim upward band of green with fresh water from places they knew. Now they camp, and memory is an urgent neighbor. But just as hope seems severed from hope, one amongst them lifts the Shababa, the old six-hold flute, severed from PVC pipe. Feet spring up on fevered earth, ten pairs of hands are clapping, and Sarah Nawasha at seventy, is dancing, the slim green band at her waist, turning circles with her. See the embroidered white cloth streaming from behind her head, a flag in the absence of olive branches, See their jaunty shadows, long in afternoon's light, knocking upon a fence, asking it for a dance. So the next pairing is called Volva and V. I asked this yesterday at Pages, but um, where are the Lord of the Rings fans today? (laughs) Vulva Sometimes I think of myself as Pippin And my Vulva as Mary (laughs) I hold him when he asks Are you going to leave me? Like in the third Elotoyar movie When he's half dead on the battlefield On the outskirts of Minas Tirith His castle promontory, let's face it Looks like a giant clitoral hood Hewn from stone Uh (laughs) Pippin finds his Mary To his question, replying, I'm going to look after you, which means, no, Mary, you are not expendable. I don't know if battle I've been through, what I or my mother survived, what passed to me as muscle terror and an anger at my body. That my clitoris is forged like a wishbone like yours is a sign of some survival. So the next poem is called "V," and um, You'll understand very shortly why I very rarely read this poem out loud. <laughs> but being in a radical space, I'm going to read it today out loud. <laughs> v. If I publish this poem absurdly, I imagine no one will overhear that what I have is called vaginousness, that I have learned pleasure within constraint or just beyond it, a supra-vaginal superwoman. Still, it is super hard, to find a man content with the non-penetrative life. I guess I gave up years ago on dilation, couldn't pass the third or fourth size, never found the worth of intercourse, that brand of openness. I thought this fact made me super abnormal. I thought I'd given up on my V, but it was just the world's idea of it. I'm going to read two um, relationship poems. So a few years ago, I was married and living in North Bay, uh, Ontario. And my partner and I decided we would separate temporarily for the summer. And then we would kind of like reconvene and decide if we wanted to stay married or divorce. And so we packed up our things. And um, this is the the poem, Moving Day, that came out of uh, that day. Moving day, North Bay. Tomorrow my hand will shake as the key turns in the lock and all the rooms empty of our sights. We'll have packed the air mattress, emptied the fridge, the day good for a drive. Springtime and heading south in the U-Haul, the land ahead will rear, rise. You will call it a horse, and explain how we would lived at the edge of one this ridge, the other. The wheels will rumble across the graben, that low stretch where the land was humbled by glaciers. Primed by a terrain of normal fault and rift, the word divorce will still split me. Halted in traffic, I will ask you why. Eros clings to erosion, birds to debris. And I read this poem yesterday. Um, It's the last poem in the book called Daniel. So it's about my current partner, who's the best partner. (laughs) And um, I mentioned in my introductory remarks that Daniel is blind. um, But what I didn't mention was that he's been blind from birth. So um, that's the, the larger context for this poem. Daniel, soon after you were born, doctors scraped away each blue eye. Early eighties, the practice in inucleation, which the ear registers as atomic disaster, though it isn't. And when, for the first time, you removed before me the artifice, sockets left naked, I might have turned away, but I didn't. Companions for each other, each an imperfect orb, acrylic with vessels of red silk, Irides green and unmuted in their luster. We stood there by the bathroom sink, passing the prostheses between us. Each bore the weight of a gold band. They fit in our palms like two dice, a luckier hand. (laughs) Um, So Heftus, very compressed in its language, um, and I also, feel it's compressed in its themes. Because everything kind of comes together and coalesces. The body, uh, relationships, the world we live in, everything is kind of coming together and it's very compact. Um, So the next three poems I'm going to share are um, about my parents. I find that some of my poems are written because I want to remember something, and I feel like if I don't interpret it into a poem, I'll forget it, or I'll, I won't remember it in the way I want to remember it and understand it. So containing it in a poem helps me to remember. Moving, 1993. Squished into the back of a minivan, my mother, my sister, and I. Us three, passenger left empty. A depression in this landscape, vanscape, a placeholder. For father, depressed father, my father. Twenty-six years, and still I remember our driver. An Ed, an accuracy verified by my mother. His diary supplies this square Filipino realtor a surname, Shosha. At seven, I'm not sure how to spell it, but it sounds hushed or rustling, how the late spring night feels between showings and how we move through them, each 30 seconds, devoid of lingering. In the minivan, Ed asks my mother what she does for a living, a question so casual and usual, He does not see our bodies stiffen. The grand houses we're viewing in tension with our actual situation. Accounting, she offers, hiding the truth of telemarketing. All these years, all these years, I've not once heard my mother ask for succor. And this backseat night we humor her, weigh each place's merits, ours for the choosing. Through darkness, buckled, hurtling, just for a moment, we are moving. Um, so the next poem is um, also a poem about my mother. And it's called Batramanda. Um, and I just have a note explaining this title. So it's a Bengali word, or a Bangla word. Um, both of my parents are from Bangladesh. and. Um, the reason I named this poem Bacher Mundo or renamed it that, is because um, for a long time it was called Rice Balls. That's like the English equivalent of the title. And um, because of an experience of my sister um, in Alberta, she, my, my family before I was born lived in Edmonton for a while. And she had, my sister had an experience there where uh, one of her teachers told my parents that she spoke English with a poor accent. So from that day forward, um, my parents decided not to speak Bangla in the home. So I'm five years younger, and for that reason, I can't understand my parents when they speak on the phone or when my relatives come over. I don't know what they're saying, and um, it's, very, it's very painful, because often my relatives forget that I can't speak or understand, and so they'll naturally speak to me in Bangla, and um, I have to always say, I'm sorry, I, I don't understand you. Um, so I wanted to title this poem Bacchamondo to not privilege the English, and to also um, kind of put aside my shame and self-consciousness about my imperfect knowing, um, because my tongue can't make the right sounds for this title. I just wanted to confront it and, um, and have the title anyway. Bacchamondo. my mother, my mother used to make little rice balls for me. She steamed and clattered about the cramped mustard kitchen, filling a pot with water, swelling and salting and songing the grains, plating them like planets, longing for some lost center, chirping, my mother, oh, she made me small, small, butter One morning away from ringing school bells, In 14 perfect globular mouthfuls, she fed me her story and uncooked dreams. And although my fingers cannot craft rice, they do cling stickily to the grain of history, ever remembering Le Monde, the world of sacrifice between her hands. So this book, Heft, comes from that title poem um, about the ant. And it's about my father. Um, And I found that I kind of like initially placed a lot of these father poems into the center of the book, um, kind of like they were the heart of the book. Do any of you know the Syrian poet um, Adonis? Uh, Look up Adonis's work. He's a beautiful, beautiful writer. Um, But Adonis has a line or two in uh, one of his poems and he says something like, um, I love my father, a difficult buried secret. Um, and he, I think he mentions the forehead, like his father's forehead. And I just thought of the beauty of those lines and how it was a difficult buried secret. And so I kind of wanted to uh, bury most of the father poems into the center of the book. Um, but this is another of the, the father poems. Um, Are there any Aries here? Like the astrology sign? Uh (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm a Libra. Are there Libras here? No? Really? Just me? Okay. (laughs) Yesterday we had a lot of Libras. (laughs) Um, So this poem is called Aries the Ram, and it comes from a section in the book called Astro Poems. So I'm looking at the zodiac, and I'm looking at relationships between myself and my immediate family members for the most part, and thinking about um, these relations and how I might mythologize my own um, personal history by turning to these, um, these myths that come out of the Zodiac. Aries, the Ram. The epigraph is by Natasha Trethewey. Here's the threshold I do not cross. There once was a king. He married the cloud goddess Nephili, who bore him children, a daughter, Helle and Phrixus, a son. When the king took a second wife, jealous of his progeny, he sharpened a knife and raised it high on Mount Mephistium over the boy's neck as Helle looked on. It would have been done, but with pleading, Zeus answered the prayers of the mother. Or was it the mother answered her own prayers, sending down a winged golden ram for their escape? Though Helle fell, Phrixus survived, and sacrificed the ram back to Zeus, its bright coat nailed to an oak in the grove of Ares, Nephilim raising its fleeceless body to the stars. All this to explain how a ram came to be on some nocturnal tablet related to an obdurate patron of corals. So says Ovid, or Apollonius of Rhodes, or maybe Wikipedia. I admit none of this would matter if you, father, were not born stubborn ram, and I, Libra, an opposition, distance, circumscribed by a zodiac. I tell the story again. There once was a ram, but in this, our earthbound version, only a kitchen is golden, yellow fluorescence, the ram unharmed and warm in his own fleece pajamas, save the fact that he's choking. You're choking on a tablet, clutching a cup at the sink, and I am nearby within helping distance. My right hand made fist for some maneuver, or do I hold the balance, the judgment on your life? This is the threshold I do not cross. My arms afraid to embrace, to dislodge, something long stuck in your throat. So here we are, ram and daughter, frozen each to our place, a tableau vivant of reticence. As you choke father forgive me my fault somewhere high above this kitchen ceiling justice rushes a starry vault her scales dropped a clatter i wanted the end of of aries the ram to be ambiguous um because The the clatter at the end could be um, my father dropping the cup if he did happen to continue choking, or it could be um, Justice dropping her scales to rush to the aid, to rush across the sky and and aid um, Aries the Ram. So it was like a psychological, like a psychic way of healing, um, because in this moment, um, given my fraught relationship with my father, I heard him choking and I, ran into the room and I was unable to um, hug him to perform the Heimlich because we don't say I love you, we don't hug. I've never heard those words from him. And so this was like a psychic way of healing. Um, my secret title for this poem, even though it's officially called Aries the Ram, is poem in which the speaker does not look good. Because <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to write with human flaw and show that like as the writer of the poem I'm not above and um, there are you know, things I wish I could take back or do differently. I'm gonna end with um, two poems. One is uh, the first poem in the book, and then the last, the second poem is um, the second last poem in the book, or uh, in, almost the the second last poem. Poem for your pocket. What my pockets have kept over seasons, coffee change, house keys, TDC tokens, emptiness and silence, and my ungloved, reticent hands. Poems, thoughts of Miklos Radnoti, he who hid in his pocket a thin notebook on his forced march toward death in some unallied forest, forced beyond reason to one mass grave, one mass Silence. Still, one silence his overcoat pocket would not keep. Eighteen months passed before his wife unpacked that pocket of earth, rifled through corpses, clothing, found what remained. It was love. Love rifled through Miklosha's silences. Love gave his damp last pages back to sunlight's keep. Oh, yes. Yes, it was love announcing in him I. Will find my way to you. I will come back. And um, the last poem I'm going to share is called 30 Second Parallel. So this poem comes from a section in the book called Parallel Poems, um, in which I was interested in place and how place has been carved up um in colonial ways, through latitude lines um, or parallels. And so in this section, I'm looking at parallels and um, trying to find I tried to find two places on a given line that I could then research further. And I thought to myself, what would happen if I put these two halves side by side on the page, uh, like a parallel would be? What would that mean on the page? which is why, all of the poems in the book ended up in this split form. So it came from the parallel poems. 32nd parallel. One, Al is Orange Trees. If a farmer weeps, he weeps for three days, his heart uprooted from between his lungs. Roots and branches, leaves and blossoms, pulled like scarves from between his lungs. If the blossoms shake, a bee knocked from a blossom, his tufted bee body yellow with pollen, the pollen that leapt to bee among his branching hairs. If the bee is knocked, he flees, exiled, his hind leg heaving a basket of pollen. If the pollen is heaved, it is the last harvest, the harvest of memory, the harvest of song. 2015 Prayer for Charleston. Um, And this half was written uh, after the church shooting, the, um, the black church in Charleston. So let's hold this space open. In four directions, let the body move. A hand, a dove. In four directions, let the body move. A hand a dove. In four directions let the body move, a hand, a dove. Thank you so much. in um, these poems in thinking about what people do with their hands and um, the ordinary little moments in daily life and um, do you know Carolyn Forche? Okay, so if you go on YouTube, um, Carolyn Forche has a wonderful interview through um, Hoko Pulizzo, it's Howard County something something but like Hoko Pulizzo. Um and so the the um, interviewer was uh, asking Carolyn forche like how did her landmark anthology um, uh, about witness come about and she gave this beautiful beautiful answer and um, part of it was that she had to explain to WW w. Norton um, what a poet of witness was and in in describing that like and in her work and putting this ten, uh, anthology together over like I think she said 13 years in the end it took her to complete it. Um, what she realized was that poets of witness were, um, for her, poets who had lived through um, some kind of turmoil personally, uh, various kinds of house arrest, um, the Holocaust, other kinds of exile. Um, and no matter what they were writing, they all had kind of like a palpable quality to that. Um, and so she called this kind of helpability, um, that kind of poet, a poet of witness Mm -hmm. or a poem of witness. And what I realized in like listening to Carolyn Forche speak was that, um, I would consider my poems to be kind of like poetry of spirit, but in, in a daily sense. Mm -hmm. So like the spirit of the everyday, um, not aligned with a particular faith tradition or spiritual tradition, but just, um, kind of like a quieter, um, deeper kind of spirit. And so I was hoping for that to come across in the poems. Almost
1: like a deeper universality. Yeah. Yeah, Which doesn't have to be always so specific.
2: Exactly. And I wanted um, the poems to be very capacious. My Mm -hmm. partner laughs at me because he says, like, my favorite word is capacious. Mm -hmm. But like, Mm -hmm. but that's what I wanted. I wanted that sense of universality because, um, I wouldn't want anyone to feel turned away by yeah. a poem oh, I yeah. Yeah. yeah, but rather invited in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did anyone have any other um, questions? or?
0: It's not a question, but I know that there's writers in the room, and um, and I, I've heard you speaking in Winnipeg mm-hmm. and when we had the workshop. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit, because it's quite <coughs> kind of, um big gap between your two books.
2: Yeah.
0: Right? And so if you could just share a little bit about how you came to collect this this body of work mm-hmm. um, and the eight-year gap mm-hmm. between, between work, just a little bit of that.
2: Yeah. Um, so my first book uh, was called Yusuf and the Lotus Flower. And it came out with a very small press in Ottawa called Bushek Books, which has since gone out of business. So the book is out of print. Um, But that book came out in October 2011. um, And I had put that collection together without knowing that I was assembling a manuscript. Um, Basically, I had just been writing every day. And um, eventually, I looked at all the poems, and I thought to myself, oh, like, these would actually work together very well uh, as a manuscript. But I wasn't part of the publishing industry, so I didn't understand anything about manuscripts or how how to publish. Um, So after, you know, realizing that it could be a manuscript, I um, submitted the work to several presses, and eight months later, I heard back from one who wanted to publish, um, and I went with that. So I think overall that book came together in maybe the span of two years, um, maybe three. But afterwards, um, I felt a lot of um, scrutiny uh, for my own work in the book. And just because um, I kept reading and growing my practice and growing my mind and my like inquiry, um, I started feeling very uneasy about those poems and realized that if I ever wrote again, I would want to try it a very different way. Um, and so I wanted to give myself um, a long, long time to work on each individual poem and in heft and treat the poem as poem first, not as, a manuscript first, um, because I wanted each poem to be able to uh, stand on its own, regardless of context, um, and to just enjoy the process of being slow and editing. Um, so, so that's kind of what happened. So like, I started the, the idea for Heft, um, or for the Parallel Poems, came to me in 2010, and it was actually because of a CV2 contest. Um, it was the 35th anniversary contest, so CV2 wanted writers to um, submit poems that incorporated the number 35, and I thought to myself, like, okay, how could I use the number 35 in a way that's not trite, that's, like, very fresh, and um, the idea of latitude lines came to me, so I thought, oh, okay, like, I could call it 35th parallel. The poem could be 35 lines long. It could, each line could be 35 characters, and um, And then I could pull the two places on the latitude line for being on the 35th parallel. So that was the first poem that came out. Um, Mm -hmm. And as soon as I wrote that poem, um, I wrote in my journal, What If, um, which goes back to my introductory remarks. um, And I wrote, What If, I wrote a whole series of these poems. And out of the parallel poems, I thought to myself, what if I applied this to the sonnet form? And that's why I started writing the split sonnets that are, seven lines and seven lines split in half. And then out of that came the what if of, what if I doubled the sonnet and, and did 14 lines and 14 lines. So it was like a very slow growth. And I think um, allowing myself that room to develop um, and to kind of like bring the manuscript out into different trajectories um, was very beneficial. Um, so I'm happy I gave myself that time. Um, and even still there are things I would change in the book. So. It's never done, like the work's just never done, but um, I am very happy that I like learned more <laughs> about patience through the process, mm-hmm. yeah. Because I find a lot of writers uh, put out collections very quickly, one after the other, and so there's not a lot of gr- uh, room for growth between um, increase. Mm-hmm. so, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I really like what you said about uh, poetry Times it's taken without me knowing it, thirty years of mm-hmm. knowing that same event, mm-hmm. but never written it, right? Written about it. That long arc of experience creates
1: in one moment the best thing I could have ever written, mm-hmm. because it was almost like I had to go through a long period um, of resistance. Oh, I mean, of resilience mm. to to find the way to say it. Mm-hmm. You know, So, and I love that idea. That's, That's
2: beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Did some of your work yesterday have that long arc? Oh, yeah. 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 I could feel it. Yeah. 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 Um, There's one poem in here called Two Burials. And it was about um, uh, when I was younger, I wanted to, I thought I wanted to be a farmer. And so I told my dad, like, oh, I don't want to go to, I don't want to go to university. I want to be like a farmer. And he was like, no, like, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> you, need, you need the paper. And so I went to university for him, but I kept dropping out because I was very unhappy. And, um, and so anyway, I went to France as a way of like appeasing myself. And um, there's pro- a program called Woofing, uh, Worldwide <laughs> Workers on Organic Farms. So I went um, up into the Pyrenees Mountains for a few days And stayed with this family who had built their home over like eight years and they were raising their family up there and um, anyway I had this experience in France and I think it was like 2006 and then um, I knew I wanted to write a poem about that but I kept making false starts and it took ten years to figure out how to write that poem Um, because I (laughs) Right? Yeah, that's pretty good by your 30-year mark. (laughs) The next one, I'll aim for 30 years. And I'll say Wayman, I I did a 30-year poem. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, they take their time, I guess. yeah <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's funny you say that too because like I always wanted after being a, wanting to be a farmer I wanted to be a massage therapist and um, I never did it for like various reasons and I'm, I'm thinking now going back to school to become a massage therapist but part of what I love about it is that it's so slow and counter to the way that we generally operate in society. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, it's so intimate in a way. It's like, it's very similar to poetry. It's like a one-on-one experience, Mm -hmm. counter to the regular pace and stream of life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was talking to somebody who's uh, putting together a manuscript right now. And he has this timeline in his mind of like, he wants it out uh, to publishers by a certain date. And he wants it published by a certain date. And um, I just asked him like, why? Like, why do you have this timeline? And he said something interesting, which is that um, he doesn't know what his future will hold, and he could not come home tomorrow. Like, mm-hmm. And that was interesting because of who he is, like his, um, his background and his life experience. It was like, hmm, I, I do understand that, too, of like there are some people who maybe they don't feel so safe in their body, and they don't know how much longer they have, not that any of us know. Uh, How long we have, but for for maybe for him, he has more of a sense of urgency. Um, So I think like there are multiple ways of approaching it. For me, it did feel like a resistance to move slowly. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: Mm -hmm. yeah. I just wanted to say thank you for the essay at the beginning. You're welcome. Um, You're thinking about architecture, which is something I think about a lot too, although very differently. Mm. Um, But I really and I really liked the metaphor as well of poetry as a Core that, you know, kind of runs over the sort of the, the bounds, the bounded lines of the lives we're otherwise asked to live. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, because you had said, you know, there's always things I want to revise.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that just seemed like such a great idea. What would you revise about that? It's a great idea. Or are there other things in that essay that you yeah. would, or, or are there yeah. other ways you would extend the metaphor
2: Yeah, well, one thing um, in the essay that I would probably revise is, um, let me look at it. Um, Yeah, I wasn't sure when I said, uh, you know, like metal spikes and these kinds of uh, defensive architectures uh, um, intentionally uninvite certain bodies and groups, primarily the homeless. I just feel like I didn't need the word primarily. Um, Why did I, cause like there could be so many intersectional ways to approach like who is being disregarded. And so I just wondered if I could have been more intersectional there somehow. Um, And again, like that idea of non-looking because my partner's blind, like I feel like I think much more about my language around looking and vision and non-looking, and even about disability, like I had this impulse, um, speaking just earlier to say, uh, to like stand up for, like you're standing up for a cause, but what if like you're in a wheelchair and you wouldn't be standing up for a cause, like, or standing for the national anthem, or standing for something, what if in your body you're not literally standing, like are those people excluded, and like, what kind, so, yeah, just like, Uh things Uh like that. Right. Um, What else? I think also, at the end, when I gave examples, like, (coughs) Naomi Nye, Derek Walcott, um, Cheso Miosh, and WS Merwin, I think if I were writing now, I would have included at least one Indigenous poet. And I think that might have been really lovely, um, especially because I think I'm the, maybe the only Canadian writing in this um, anthology. Mm-hmm. So I feel like maybe I could have done some better work mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. That's thoughtful and careful. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Are there other questions, folks, or comments? I have a really silly question. <laughs> no, nothing silly. <laughs> I was so intrigued with the formatting. I was just wondering if you had resistance um. from it's such a structural question. I was just, I'm, I've never seen a book printed that way before. Oh and so I'm wondering like, if you had to justify it, rationalize it, put it in context, have conversations with them, mm. or, or if it was just like, it works, no worries. It was the latter. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah nice. I was very lucky. So um, the the manuscript was acquired by Dionne Brand for MS. and s um, I had actually sent the manuscript to Canada Council for the Arts in 2013 because I needed some money and I was like, well, let me try to get a works in progress grant. And I ended up getting the grant. And when I looked at who was on the granting committee, it was Diane Brand. And so it just so happened that years, years later, um, the manuscript ended up going back to her. And so I think she already had that kind of initial experience with it. Um, But what was funny was, Uh, I didn't plan for the poems, or most of the poems, to be on their side. Um, I initially envisioned them this way, and the book would be in landscape format, and that the poems that run through, uh, which I call um, inverses, but they're like erasure texts, would just, they would still cut through, but But these poems, the split poems would, they'd be like that. So the erasures would be cutting through like this, the middle of them. Mm -hmm. And um, what ended up happening with the typesetting in production was that uh, the book, because of the dimensions the book had to be, um, and because they couldn't make it a larger book or a landscape book, um, my publisher said, you have several options. Like you do what you feel comfortable with. So she said, like, option one is you print the ones that fit uh, upright, upright print the ones that don't fit that way sideways. Mm -hmm. And the other option is um, printing them all uh, upright. But then when it's a long poem, say it was two pages, it would be like reading down one column, then having to read down that column, then going back to this column, then going back to that column. Mm -hmm. And if the poem was three pages, because there was one that came three, it would be like, Intrusive to do that, and then the other option was flipping them on their side. And so I decided to just flip them all because I wanted the reader to have um, a flow, and I wanted these um, er- erasures or inverses to cut through, and I wanted that to be the jarring element. So um, I didn't want to introduce other elements that were jarring for no reason. Um, but honestly, I feel like it worked out, it's like one of those just serendipitous things where it worked out better because when once I turned them on their side, obviously, that line was able to pass right through, like holding everything together, Um, and because this erasure poem that's like fragmented over the book is about um, my issues with uh, chronic pain and the body, I felt like it was a way of weaving my personal narrative like right through with a thread, so it worked out, but um, they had no trouble with it. They did say it was the first book they'd ever printed um, of this kind, and so, it was, we had to do eight passes to get them in order. Um, there were lots of difficulties with the type setting, but in the end, it worked, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Thank you guys so much. Like, This was just wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. This has been my favorite, uh, favorite <laughs> reading and favorite trip for the book, and <laughs> you're all just so, so nice and supportive of each other, and it just I can feel like this genuine sense of care. So yeah, thank you. I'm really
1: honored to be here. Mm -hmm. Thank Thank you so much for coming. It's been wonderful to have you here. Mm -hmm. Thank Thank you. you. We hope you enjoyed this recording of Doyali Islam at Tea House. I'm Trin Delaney, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Trin Delaney, Rebecca Jelaine, Isabel Mikulski, and Joshua Whitehead. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc@gmail.com. gmail.com. Thank you for listening.